Okay, welcome everyone. This is the first podcast after ASCO. I'm very excited to be here with Dr. Berlesi at Gustav Rossi. Dr. Berlesi, welcome to the Axiom podcast. Thank you. Great. In terms of the data that we see post-ASCO, what caught your eye in terms of anything that is practice changing or any new emerging targets or MOEs that you're excited about? I would say that regarding uh, practice changing, uh, probably data presented in colon cancer regarding circulating tumor DNA and how liquid biopsy may help to better stratify the risk of relapse and how we may escalate or de-escalate the adjuvant therapies is something very interesting. Regarding the mechanism of action, I think this ASCO was also uh, plenty of uh, a lot of data regarding antibody drug conjugates. And I think it's a type of drug we are using. We have some approvals for these drugs, but we are not still understanding everything <laughs> about these drugs. And there were a lot of news, new studies uh, looking at, uh, I would say, a new development, but also a better understanding on how these drugs are working. And I think uh, regarding this aspect, ASCO was a great ASCO. Great. So maybe we just jump right into the precision medicine piece a little bit, uh, talking about liquid biopsy and others. How far do you think incorporation of liquid biopsy is in clinical practice for screening and early detection? I believe liquid biopsy will be clearly, if it is already clearly a, a large part of our practice, but will take a biggest place in the future. We have a lot of data regarding our ability to use liquid biopsy for the screening of patients, and we are developing in Gustav Rossi a program called Interception. And the idea is to be able to identify those patients at high risk of developing a cancer, being able to follow them and to better characterize them. And then in the future, we hope that liquid biopsy will be a, a tool for identifying those patients at very high risk and maybe try to intercept this risk for the, making those patients never sick with, uh, with a cancer. The, the second part is how a liquid biopsy will help us during the, the workup of the patients with an abnormal images or clinical symptoms. And uh, I believe that liquid biopsies will help to have a better and shorter workup for those patients, identifying the targets that will be uh, eligible and uh, actionable for those patients. And we have a program that we are developing here, and we hope that liquid biopsy will clearly help and shorten the time to, uh, to the treatment of those patients. For those patients who are treated, clearly liquid biopsy will help, and we have we had a lot of data already published, but also presented during the ASCO meeting, helping to characterize those patients who are responding, responding very well with a high chance to be controlled for long term. And it, it's probably especially true regarding immunotherapies. And those patients who present with a stable disease and without any clear answer regarding a decrease in the amount of circulating DNA. And we know that those patients are probably at high risk of secondary resistance to, to the drugs. And finally, I would say regarding the our ability after uh, the treatment to better monitor or better uh, stratify those patients who are already treated, as an example, with an early stage of the disease. And the example of the colon mm -hmm. uh, studies presented at the ASCO meeting is for me uh, really important is can we better characterize the risk of relapse in all of the patients in order to do a precision medicine 
adjuvant treatment, and it's the first part. And the second part is saying maybe for some of those patients, no adjuvant treatment will be needed. And maybe I would say simple follow-up Mm-hmm. Will be uh, will be also sufficient for those patients. Then no need for a further uh, regular three months uh, CT scan, etc. Then I believe that there are a lot of spaces where liquid biopsy will help in managing the patients in the future. Perfect, perfect. Thank you so much. And I guess you're referring to the dynamic trial that was at this ASCO as well. Perfect. Great. And as we talked about, you know, this being the crucible of LAC3, I guess it's Dr. Tribel who was at Vesobrosi who discovered LAC3. So in terms of IO, so we saw the IO, uh, the next wave, and then we are trying to see IO wave 2.0 and then 3.0. What are some of your aspirations in terms of, you know, when we hear news about the TIGIT not making the data not being positive, uh, and obviously small cell lung cancer is a very different disease than a non-small cell lung cancer. What are some of your hopes in the next generation of IO? I believe my, my hopes are probably in line uh, with the expectations of the patients and all the clinicians in, is how can we overcome primary resistances or secondary resistances that occurs, in fact, in the majority of our patients and outside those 20, 25% of the patients who are controlled for long term, we know that we have to make a lot of progresses. I believe these progresses should be made both in a better understanding of the disease, either before starting the immunotherapy, what are the characteristics of the tumor, the patients, the microorganisms that will be predictive of the activity of the drugs, or what are the change and the uh, the mechanism that put in place by uh, by the patients or by the tumor cells in order to uh, bypass the blockage we are making. And I would say, uh, of course, we have theoretical possibilities, and I believe that TG, leg three, but a lot of other uh, immune checkpoints uh, are really important in this setting. It, it's, for me, still theoretical and until we are able to demonstrate that it is clearly a pathway by which the uh, the tumor is overcoming the, uh, the the blockage we are making with PD-1 or pd one inhibitors. And I believe that in spite of the, the very important results that have been presented uh, with the, the TGT inhibitors developed by Roche, I believe that one of the problems is that it was only a subgroup analysis of a phase two randomized trial. And the problem is that we have, it was, of course, a bet from both the companies, but I would say also the clinicians. We want to have a solution for those patients. But at the end, unfortunately, we uh, we maybe miss the targets. And I don't know if it's linked to the drug itself, if it's linked to the fact that maybe there is only a small subgroup of patients who are benefiting from this strategy. Is it uh, something that is that that we have to better manage, I don't know, the combination is the combination with the PD-1 or PD-1, the best one, etc. Then probably, even if it's harder to do, we have to do a a lot of, I would say, uh, biological trials in order to better understand that. And it's what we do in uh, Gustavo Sieb in uh, Ex-Marseille University with the Pioneer uh, trial. And we we will present during the ESMO meeting some of the results on uh, 200 patients where we try to better characterize the disease in order to identify those different subgroups of patients. And we hope, of course, that at the end, it will help us to better design the strategy to overcome primary and secondary resistances. 
Got it. Great. So any uh, potential that you can think of for LAG3 beyond melanoma? Sure. LAG3 is uh, one of the other checkpoints that is uh, important. We have those data in melanoma patients. We have those signals in other tumor types, uh, especially, if I would say, uh, both preclinical and clinical signals. At the end, we, we, we could not be sure, and we know by the, the previous uh, studies that have been uh, conducted in different tumor types that the activity of the different checkpoints are not exactly the same across the different tumor types, then probably the combination of LAX3 and the activity of LAX3 has to be better understood regarding the different uh, tumor types that we have uh, to, to design the better strategy in non-small cell lung cancer, of course. Makes sense. And then in terms of uh, other macrophage targets like CD47, Clever1, any thoughts? Of course, targeting the tumor microenvironment, and we know that we have a lot of targets in this in this field, the macrophages, but also the fibroblasts. We know that we have uh, different uh, agents, but it's probably even harder to uh, to better predict the activity of these targets. But it's of course really really important as as a future target. Yeah. Yeah. And then you know, uh, for the many different ASCOs in the past, we talked about TMBs and then high PDL1 expressions, etc. So PDL1 expression. Um, in terms of the biomarker for PD-1 and PD-1 therapies, it's far, far from far perfect, right? What do you see in terms of emerging biomarkers that could identify patients who would benefit from a PD-1 and PD-L1 therapies? It's our strategies to different directions. Mm-hmm. The first one is to say, Maybe we have, maybe PD-1, PD-L1 could be a very good biomarkers, but it's the way we are assessing this biomarker that it's not the best one. And we know that the digitization of the analysis, we know that probably looking at the space distribution of the PD-1, PD-L1 expression could be important or could better predict the activity of PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors. And it's something we are doing uh, with the Veracite, as an example, in, in the Pioneer project. And we have presented some already re- interesting results uh, during the ASE and the SITC meeting. And probably this capacity to uh, analyze the special distribution on larger samples by using uh, digital tools will be very important. On the other side, uh, you're right, there are other types of biomarkers that may be important uh, in the tumor microenvironment that we can characterize the T-Rex infiltration, the T-cell exhaustion, etc. But we hope to be able to generate signatures that will be easy to reproduce, that will be easy to use, and that will be easy to understand for the clinicians. We don't need to have thousands of different biomarkers with uh, huge difficulties to interpret the difference and to find the good. I believe that some simple signatures, we hope we don't have that, but we hope to have it in the future in order to be able to better predict the activity of these biomarkers. Then this, the two way we are working, uh, we are working in. Got it. So for the listeners who may not be so close to the Pioneer project, do you want to give them a quick yeah, the, um, yeah, sure. The Pioneer Project is a project that's aimed to include in the first part 450 patients that will be biopsied before starting the immunotherapy after six weeks of immunotherapy and then in case of progression. Those patients are receiving immune checkpoints inhibitors. At the beginning of this project, it was in monotherapy in the second line setting in advanced non-small cell and cancer, of course. And now it's mainly in combination with chemotherapy 
up in the first line setting. And uh, then we hope to very nicely characterize using more than 400 different biomarkers, the characteristics of the patient both before starting the treatments, on treatment, and then at the time of progression. And the idea is to try to uh, identify those specific biomarkers who are really important in order to predict the sensitivity and the long-term sensitivity to the PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors or the risk of primary or secondary resistance. And then for those patients who are progressing within the first 12 weeks in the second line setting or 24 weeks in the uh, first line setting, we are trying to overcome the resistances by treating them in an umbrella trial where we use different types of combinations and uh, we use some of the combinations that are already uh, reported like with an NKG2A inhibitors, with uh, CD73 inhibitors, with CMET inhibitors, etc. Then we hope that the combinations with immunotherapy and some targeted agents or some other immune checkpoint inhibitors may help in overcoming the resistances and uh, we, we hope to be able to present some of the results and uh, I believe that some good signals uh, may be there. Great, so changing gear a little bit in cell therapy. So we have seen major advances and remarkable results in heme, not so much in solid tumor, right? So what are some of your thoughts in terms of what are some of the roadblocks in solid? And are you seeing any early signals of uh, any trials that may be making a a breakthrough in solid tumor? For the moment, I would say uh, our experience in solid tumors is is probably uh, lower regarding our U.S. or Chinese colleagues. (laughs) But for sure, the results that uh, we got in uh, him, of course, really uh, enthusiastic for for all the the oncologists, and uh, and we hope to be able to reproduce some of these results in solid tumors. Then we are developing a large program of uh, of T-cell therapy. We are reorganizing some of our units for that. And I I believe that we will uh, try to capitalize on the experience of our hematologist colleagues to, uh, I would say, first to conduct trial with the highest level of security. And we know that it's not so easy to manipulate cell therapy in, uh, in patients with solid tumors that made, uh, I would say, some comorbidities, uh, especially in advanced tumors. And the second point is we know that finding the right target for those drugs is not uh, so easy. Then uh, we have a transactional program regarding uh, the, the identification of those targets. But we really believe, and it's why we are reorganizing ourselves, we really believe that uh, there will be uh, important uh, studies and important work to do in the future in order to be able to address this question. Maybe our bet is also, uh, I would say, to, to imagine that the uh, the future of the cell therapy will be made on a drug with uh, probably a low rate of uh, side effects that would be easier to manipulate in order to be able to provide the, vast, the majority of the patient with solid tumor with this kind of drug. That is clearly difficult today if we look Absolutely. on uh, the, the, the safety of a CAR T cell as an example. Thoughts on some of the armoring of cell therapy, like in, in, in terms of that becoming a solution, the armoring of the cell? Yeah, clearly, uh, we know that we see that uh, companies and biotechs are developing more and more therapies with the manipulations of the uh, immune cells. And clearly, in the future, it's one of the big ways uh, to, to overcome the resistances to the, to the, I would say, the immunotherapy we have on, on our end right now. Perfect. In terms of academic and as you were just mentioning biotech, what is the best way you feel that the academics 
academic centers and the biotech and the industry can partner better, more efficiently. One of the other bets we are doing right now, we are, we set up with the University Paris-Saclay, with Sanofi Adventist, uh, and uh, the INSERM and the Ecole Polytechnique. We founded a project which is called the Paris-Saclay Cancer Cluster. And the idea to answer your question is to try to concentrate all of these activities on the same place, like uh, the uh, US did in the, with the Kendall Square. And the idea is to say that having all of these researchers, uh, clinicians at, the, at a close distance from the patients than from the hospitals uh, will be really important in order to uh, to exchange and being able to find uh, breakthrough strategies that will help to uh, better manage and cure more patients. And it's uh, what we are developing in the surrounding area of Gustavo C. And uh, a lot of companies join this project. Some other hospitals like Curie and the Assistance Publique Hôpital de Paris join this project. Also some other academic centers like Marseille Immunopole, uh, but a lot of companies also mm -hmm. beside Sanofi a lot of big and uh, big companies and some biotechs are joining the project and I really believe that it's uh, by uh, exchanging discussing having the opportunities to discuss even for short times not a pre-planned meeting, but I would say uh, uh, just sometime by, by chance that you are discussing with uh, with colleagues and then you are able to, uh, to generate uh, more breakthrough discoveries. So the French biotech uh, segment seems strong. We hope not as strong as uh, some of our competitors. We have uh, very strong startups, but it's difficult for the money. Or at least it was difficult, but the President Macron oui. decided to put a lot of energy in a plane called France uh, 2030. And is an old, uh, the, the French administration is very supportive of this plane. And we hope to be able to generate more discoveries, but also more companies that are able to, uh, to generate uh, uh, good and uh, strong discoveries for the patients. Perfect. If I may, uh, how does Gustave Rossi work with the surrounding communities for patients that need assistance and may not have all the support function? What are some of the activities that you lead? Uh, in fact, in, uh, in Gustavo C, we are, uh, uh, we take care of patients that are coming from the, our uh, surrounding area in one third, one third from the, the Paris area, but one third outside Paris area and from all of the place in France and even internationally. We are treating patients from uh, all, for all uh, tumor types, uh, including uh, hematologic uh, diseases and uh, patients, adult patients and also children patients. And we believe that uh, what will be important in the future will be to enlarge our capacity to identify potential cancer patients very early, then the prevention uh, will be really important. But we want to apply what we did in advanced stage, in early stage, with a precision medicine prevention program, which is called interception. And for the patients who uh, could be cured for the disease or are followed. We believe that the digital solution will be also very important to follow those patients. Then we created a company called Resilience and we are following those patients uh, with uh, digital tools. And we believe that the digitization will also help to uh, identify patients uh, all around the countries or even uh, outside our countries in order to provide those patients maybe with more equity, I would say, regarding mm -hmm. the access to yeah. innovations, yeah. to potential clinical trials, to tools to better monitor that and also what we are developing regarding our research, regarding avatars for better designing or better trying to predict how the drugs may work for them uh, exactly. in the future. And it's what we try to develop here in Gustavo C in order to, uh, to propose 
to all the patients, whatever they are diagnosed and followed here, the better solution as possible. No, thank you for your leadership at this great institution. Very privileged to be here with you uh, this afternoon. What are you excited about at ESMO? Uh, I believe you will have a very, <laughs> very, very impressive ESMO. I cannot yes. disclose all the <laughs> sure, things sure. that will be presented. Don't disclose but, anything private. <laughs> no, no, but I believe, I believe it will be a, a great ESMO. First, because it will be in Paris. Super, yes. <laughs> and second, because we have the chance to uh, uh, to have the next uh, ESMO president here in Gustave Roussy. Yes. And Professor Fabrice André uh, is one of the major leaders uh, at the ESMO. And I believe uh, there will be uh, a lot of news. And I believe that ESMO has also so uh, the, the capacity to move, to foresee what will be the future of oncology. And I believe a lot of the, the project they have uh, will be really important for all the oncological community and, uh, and will help uh, to, uh, to differently train our youngest fellows, <laughs> but also provide all of the clinicians that are working in this field with, uh, I would say, a better idea of the future of innovation. No, absolutely. This is great. We are all excited to see uh, what comes out of the ESMO in France this year. Thank you so much for taking the time, no, thank you. for pleasure. sitting with us this afternoon at Gustave Rossi, and hopefully we get to catch up after ESMO as well. Sure, it will thank be Thank you, Dr. Berlesi. Thank you. Okay, perfect.